I'm Jeff Cohen. The next time you find yourself in a situation where it's challenging to keep Shabbos, you'll think back to today's guest, Ed Howe, who managed to live as an observant Jew on the open seas. But Ed's life started out very different from how he lives today, and he's here to share his journey. Ed, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you, Jeff, and it's really an honor to be on this podcast. Never thought I would be in such a position of kavod, so thank you. Well, from what I know about your story, you're going to inspire a lot of people today. So let's get started. And I was just thinking, by the way, the last time I went on a cruise, there were so many challenges that I had to think about in terms of Shabbos and davening and making minions and all these things. And that was just for one week. So I can't imagine what your story is going to be. Yeah, it's quite different than being around a bunch of other people you can have a minion with. I was always working on boats that were uh, the local crews, like from Ghana or from Egypt or wherever I was working. So always non-Jews. So that's a little bit different than going on a Norwegian cruise, as I can imagine. It is. It is. So, Ed, let's get to know you a little bit and where your story begins. So give our listeners a sense of where you were born and raised. I'm an Oregonian. I have webbed feet because I'm a duck. (laughs) But I grew up in Northern California in the Redwood country, Crescent City, which is way up in the extreme north. And um, my family was Methodist, and my family was pretty much involved in the Methodist church. Uh, My dad was a treasurer, and we always went to Sunday services and Sunday school and summer camps, so I was engaged with the Methodist uh, till about age 13 or 14, and I started questioning the whole idea of the Trinity, and at that age, it's hard to find satisfactory answers, so I sort of just was disillusioned, even though I was still kind of involved, but I just didn't believe in what I was hearing, and uh, when I went to university, I went to University of uh, California, I attended the Methodist Church there, and this is the early 60s. I kind of dropped out after after school. I really wasn't involved. I was uh, met a lot of Jewish people, and through a friend of mine in Washington, I met a woman who was working for the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C., and she said, she gave me her address. She said, well, you come to Jerusalem, I'll, I'll show you around the country. And this went on for a couple of years. I went to sea, and um, in 1981, I asked to go to work in Egypt because we had boats in Egypt working in the well, the Red Sea, the Yom Suf. And so I went to work there, and the first, uh, I worked two months on, had two months off, so my first vacation, I took the bus from Cairo to Tel Aviv, and it was quite a trip. It was like making Aliyah through the Sinai. It was just biblical. It was just the time that the Israelis had withdrawn from the Sinai, 1982. So as you went across the Sinai, you started noticing things getting greener. There were orchards. And these were the orchards that the Israelis in Yemit had planted. Of course, they're no longer there. But it was just amazing to watch this transition from desert to green. And when we crossed the border at Rafa, I felt like I was home. And uh, 1983, I decided to take a year off and go to the Hebrew University the junior year abroad. So I was the old man at uh, age 40 with a bunch of 19, 20-year-olds that the program there was so phenomenal. And I was living with American Olim, who were modern Orthodox. And this is my first exposure to things such as Kashrut, the Hagim, Shabbatot. So I was living these things, and then I was studying at Hebrew University. In 1985, I decided I was going to convert. So I just want to jump in here before we get further into the conversion story. I think there's some more history that I just want to go into that led you up to that point. 
you mentioned about working on the seas, but we didn't really get into like, how did you choose that profession? How did you end up there? What was your job? So can you give a little bit of background on your career? Oh, yeah. In 1973, I moved to New Orleans. I had a bunch of friends in New Orleans who wanted to set up an independent UHF station. And I had an engineering background. I was working in Silicon Valley. So I had an engineering background. I said, well, we'll help you do a feasibility study for the FCC so we could apply for a license. So about six months into this project, we were all living off of air and a hope and a prayer occasionally. It didn't make it. And so I was broke, and I was living there in New Orleans, and I knew a fellow who was the uh, headhunter for a Tidewater Marine, which is, they had a bunch of boats working tugs and uh, offshore supply vessels. I went to work as a deckhand. Started out towing barges between Galveston and Puerto Rico, and then I got on a long trip that took almost eight months. That was the tow to, uh, we towed an offshore drilling rig to uh, Brazil, and it went aground, and we had to take it to to the shipyard in Salvador in Bahia. Amazing trip. And so I decided I was going to make it a profession. And I went to, um, got my sea time, went and got my mate's license. And I spent two years as mates on tugboats, ocean going, not in the harbor, and working in, in the blue water. And uh, I got my captain's license. And then uh, 77, I started as a captain. I started working in Mexico and Nigeria for a while. And I worked in Egypt from 81 until 93. Okay, so in a, in a typical year, how much of your time are you on the water it's, versus on land? It's about half and half. Usually it's a month on, month off, or two months on, two months off, whatever you want to do. It's flexible. And so in those early years, what role is religion playing? Because you talked about how you were raised, and you started getting into your exposure to Judaism, but I know there was like a progression there. So when you were out at sea at the beginning, what role was religion playing? Not much. So you view yourself as like a totally secular person who's, who's living basically on the water. Yeah, yes, exactly. So it wasn't until I actually started living in Israel where I, I felt the, a connection, spiritual and probably more intellectual. So that's the next question I was going to ask you. You mentioned that you met someone uh, who was Jewish who gave you an opportunity to go to Israel. Why, why were you interested in that, given how you felt about religion and the job you had on the seas? Why, why were you thinking, hey, I'll go to Israel? I don't know. It was just one of those compulsive things. I had worked in so many places. I worked in Indonesia, and I worked in uh, China for a while, Shanghai, and West Africa. And Israel was always sort of there, but it was, I don't know what happened. It was just sort of a, a wake-up when I started meeting. A lot of my friends were Jewish by this time in, in America, but that didn't, most of them were secular. They weren't Dati or religious. Did you know any religious Jews at that time? Like you said, you're starting to get exposed to Jews, but everybody was Reform conservative. You didn't know anybody who was Orthodox? I don't think so. I, I don't know what started the real connection, but it was just, it was visceral. Well, so take me inside what you were feeling when you had that trip to Israel. You were just saying how you were kind of going through Sinai. What are you feeling that's making you say it's, it's home, it feels right? What, what are you feeling inside? I, I don't know how, how to say it, because it's not spiritual. It was just sort of like I, I felt included. There was something elevating about being there. And, and it also, was just such a contrast from Egypt. When I went to Tel Aviv, I thought that it was, that was sort of uh, gone Aden. It was sort of a kind of a paradise. So given how you're feeling about it, but you said it wasn't like a religious or spiritual thing, you're just feeling somehow like connected to the land, how does it cross over from that feeling into... Maybe there's something about Judaism specifically that you want to explore. 
just being there, you start realizing, it took me a couple of years to realize how Judaism is connected to the land. And I, I think it's so important, and I, I, I had no idea what the word Zionism meant at that time. But then I started, after years of living in Israel, I started saying, it's part of the Tanakh. So what, what changes do you make at that point to start exploring this further? Well, it's, it, it's weird, because then I started observing Kashrut. Before you were even Jewish, this, you just decided is, that was something important to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just I, I started saying, you know, I don't need to eat uh, bacon or, or shrimp. I just, you know, I, I, I didn't miss the things I had for all my life. Mm-hmm. And when I went back on the boats, originally, I didn't try to kosher the kitchen on the boats. Occasionally, I'd bring kosher food, but it was because I was in Israel, and I would blow up a box of frozen chicken and different things, and I bring it back. But after I converted, that became an imperative also, is to work with the the cook and have my own dishes and pots and pans that were separated. That was probably the first thing that kind of rubbed off on me, but I was living with it. That's the thing. And then and then uh, living amongst others who, in Jerusalem particularly, where Shabbat became such a kind of a high point of the week. But on a boat, when you're a captain, you're still engaged there 24 hours a day, and you're always doing things. So I sort of had to separate the idea about work on Shabbat. Eventually, I started davening. Even before I converted, I was learning the, the Siddur. And at this point, you're now living in Israel when you're not at sea? Did you actually move there, or where are you based? Well, yeah, basically, I'd, I'd come to the States once in a while in my time off, or Europe, but most of the time I'd spent in Israel. And you're starting to think about conversion at this point? And if so, is it a reformer conservative conversion, or you know at this point about a true orthodox conversion? Well, I was living in Israel. There's no other. (laughs) In the 80s, the conservative movement in Israel wasn't well developed, even though most of my friends, a lot of my friends were conservative rabbis in America, but they were living as orthodox as anybody else, you know, observant. So there was no spectrum to my way of thinking. And how much did you understand about what you were signing up for? You've talked about Kashrus, maybe Shabbos. Did you know all the things that came with this decision to convert? Well, I was living with people who lived with it all their lives. So it was they were the role models. That's what I was just going to ask you when you decided that you wanted to convert. Who was guiding you? Where were you getting your education? Who was mentoring you? Like, how did you know what the steps were? There were no steps. You were to live in it. That's, a, that's <laughs> the thing. It's a total assimilation. It's, um, it's there all the time. It's not like living in the States. I'm not sure I would have converted in America. But in Israel, it's so easy. You're on a Jewish calendar. You're living with people who observe the calendar. You assimilate this like a kid. I felt like I was a kid learning all this. And the nice thing about it was these people were quite knowledgeable. Not all of them were full-time. They didn't study Talmud or most of them were students working their PhDs, etc., and when you have an environment like that, these questions I had, it was always easy to find someone who could work with, you know, just to say, here's what we do. And of course, they're always saying, well, you're, you're nuts. You don't have to convert, Ed. You're still, <laughs> you can, you're nuts converting all what you're looking into, you know, what you're running into. And so I said, all right, I'll take my chances. <laughs> But and then is there a rabbi that's involved or based in or like someone that's behind the formal conversion? Well, yeah. Well, see, and Part Ace at the time um, had a, a working arrangement with a semi-private Beit Din in uh, Kfar Saba, and that Beit Din was phenomenal. 
And Dove Berkowitz, who was my advisor, he was quite well-known rabbi. His dad was Eliezer Berkowitz from Chicago. He was, you know, a scholar. And he was so, so lovely. And Pardes, the environment there, was just so conducive. They had a, this program with the, Kfar, the Beit Dean and Kafar Saba, and they had, I think, at the time, this is back in the 80s, I think there was not a lot of students, 40 students, I think, and three of us were converting. There was um, one fellow from Sweden and a woman from America and myself. There was three of us who went through this program. It's such a conducive environment there. It's easier to pick it up. Now, how much are you telling your family back home in the States about this conversion process? Because the way you describe your childhood, it sounded like religion was fairly significant in your family. So do they know what's going on? Are they being supportive of this journey? At that time, I was always the black sheep. I was always doing crazy things. And uh, I wasn't seeing my parents that often. So the only struggles I had is, was later on when I would come to visit and I was trying to observe Kashrut. It was a problem for my mom. She said, why can't you just eat like us? And I say, I can, but it just certain things I can eat. But that's one of those hard concepts to try to explain because it's in a belief system that Christians don't have to deal with. But eventually, because my family loved fish, fish and vegetables, we always had fish and vegetables. So it wasn't a traumatic change with my, my family. So, you know, they question, they say, why can't you just be like us? And I say, well, I've chosen a different path. I don't think it, uh, it, it didn't diminish the, the relationship. Well, you had two things going on. You had the changes you were making in religion, but also the career choice you made had you far away from your family for long stretches. So there's kind of two challenges there of remaining close with everybody. That's correct. And so the social aspect of about my life, I was always sort of the uh, peripatetic wanderer all my life. So when I chose to live differently, I think they just kind of accepted it. And so going back now to your post-conversion life, I want to understand a little bit better about the community that you're living in when you're on land and what life is like after the conversion when you're at sea. Well, I had a great community. I was living in, uh, in Talpiot in Jerusalem, so I had my choice of shuls there. And when I converted, I converted Sephardic because the chief rabbi in Farsaba, who was in Ashkenaz, he said, Ed, if you, um, you're going to live here, you have your choice when you convert. He said... Don't choose Ashkenaz. Why do you think you were given this advice to do the conversion and then be Sephardic? What was behind that suggestion? Well, because the Sephardim can deal with mixing modernity with serious religious commitments. I was working later on in the 90s. After I got my citizenship, I was working in Ashdod, which is the port at that time was still bigger than Haifa. And I rented an apartment from a Moroccan family there that were very traditional, not orthodox. Everything was kosher. They observed the Hagim, Shabbat. Maimuna for them after um, Sof Pesach was an amazing experience. This is still before it became a national holiday. And you'd go to shul in the morning. You'd come home and have a great lunch. And then you'd go to soccer games. And I said, you know, if you can live this way and you can combine both. I just felt that was a, a, a kind of an easier way to live. And I can see why it's working so well when you're in Israel on land. What's happening now when you're out at sea? How are you managing to keep all these things that you've learned? Well, it's, it's, it's difficult. So first off, trying to keep kashrut. I, found, I actually found it easier wherever I was working to work with the cooks 
not to mix things, etc., etc. This is all new to them, except for the Muslims. The Muslims, you know, they don't eat pork, but everything else, they don't have these distinctions between milk and meat, etc., etc. So there's always an educational process for these different crews, where it was in Egypt or Indonesia or wherever it was, about the, working with a cook to make sure that I could uh, maintain a, I would have to say it's probably a minimal level of kashrut, but it was kashrut nonetheless. Some of these guys are really good bakers for hala. They, they make, you know, great hala. The crews usually were quite accepting. When I used to daven, you know, put tefillin on, etc., they'd, they'd never seen this kind of dress. Going through uh, customs in some of these places, they look at the tallit bag and think it was some sort of a terrorist device. So it, they wanted to take the boxes apart. I said, you can't do that. Just put them through the x-ray because he thought there was something explosive inside. So there was all these, these challenges. And when you're by yourself like that and trying to practice things that you want to do, like davening, required some imagination sometimes. Were you usually the only religious Jew or even the only Jew on these crews and these missions? Oh, yeah, because they were all foreign crews. If I was working in Egypt, the crew was all Egyptian except for my... Usually my chief engineer was a Filipino. The chief mate was would usually be indigenous if it was in, you know, the, I have to have someone to help translate when I was doing the work. So I was solitary, just kind of doing this on my own. See, I would think as you describe this lifestyle, it, it's very different from what I think our listeners are mostly doing that have more typical jobs going into offices. And as I'm listening to you describe your life, on the one hand, it seems very exciting. You're getting to see places around the world that most of us would never get to, but I could also see it feeling lonely. So are, are you getting like both of those feelings as you as you have this career? Oh, sure. I think Judaism is such a, a social thing, and doing it on your own doesn't have quite the... It, it's still important, and it still has its weight. But when it's done amongst, uh, uh, you know, nine or ten others, I felt more grounded. And I think, you know, that's the basis of having a minion, because I think it has more power than just 10 individuals. I would think this lifestyle is also not necessarily conducive to finding that special someone settling down, marriage and kids. I didn't get married until I was 58. So <laughs> So how did, yeah. how did that come about? Did you it came to a point where you said, I, I don't want to be at sea anymore and I want to live in one place and you made that change and that's when marriage came into the picture? Yeah, I, I got off the water and I was working as a marine surveyor in Ashdod and um, the job didn't last. I was on, on a contract and I didn't know what to do. So I came back to the States to work with my brother for a while in Oregon and that's I met my wife there and she didn't want to move to Israel so ended up staying here. In Oregon or you went somewhere else? No, I, now I'm in Gloucester, Massachusetts. So um, there's always a hope to go back. You know, I'm, a, I'm 80 years old, so it's sort of more of a challenge. I have a son who's in, uh, he's a freshman at the University of North Dakota. You talk about being in Galut. <laughs> That's deep Galut. <laughs> so wait, you said you got married at 58. So the, the woman you met in Oregon, what, what was her religious background compared to where you were holding at this point? Reform. She was interested in upgrading, so um, that's kind of what happened. But uh, when you raise a, a kid going to a public school, a lot of these things slip because the kid gets involved with things that are on Shabbat, and it's a struggle sometimes. But at the time you get married, you're in Oregon, but you decide you're going to settle in Massachusetts and you have your child there? 
Well, I, I uh, was working for Intel in Oregon, so I transferred. They had a plant here in, uh, in Hudson, which is just west of, uh, west of Boston. Why did you want to move there, though? I mean, your whole life seemed to have been on the West Coast. Because I had a lot of friends in Israel who were Olim, who came from the Boston. They always said, well, Boston's sort of like the Jerusalem of North America. <laughs> so I wanted to see the, the other side of the, of the continent. Now, given that you were Orthodox at this point, you said your wife was Reformed, but looking to upgrade, is she now taking on a lot of the things that you're doing? And then when you when you have a child, you talked about public school. Did you think about enrolling your child in like a yeshiva day school? Well, it was the schlep for us out here in the Cape Ann. The tuition was the hurdle, even though it would have been reduced. So how is your son reacting to the, the lifestyle that you're trying to lead and that your, your wife is growing into but he's also in public school and, and seeing some different things. So how does he feel about the journey that you're on and what he wants for his own life? He's pretty much has no, no engagement, but he's 19. So at age 19, I don't think I had much engagement in anything except myself in school. Does he ever talk about wanting to go to Israel like the way that you explored it? Have you taken him there? No, not yet. So either going to be a birthright thing or somehow we'll make a trip to see the, the new land, El New Land. But it'd be nice if it if it did work that way. But it's no interest. So it's one of those things you can't force a person to do it. So what do you think now as you look back on your life? I'm, I'm thinking back to the beginning of the interview when you talked about your early exposure to religion when you weren't yet Jewish. Like, what would you say to your younger self who wasn't feeling engaged and connected in those teen years to where you are now? What would you tell your younger self about religion and what might lie ahead? Oh, boy. That's pretty heavy. You got to go with some heavy questions. <laughs> well, in hindsight, I, I don't know how I would take what I know now and try to go back uh, five decades, six decades. I think when you're young and restless in their 20s, like the, what I was doing, it'd be very difficult to say, well, there are important things. And one important thing is be involved in, in a communal situation, which Judaism is. And how do you deal with your individuality versus working yourself in a communal environment? That's a difficult one, because I think when you're younger, you don't think about, unless you've been engaged your whole life in uh, Jewish community activities, you know, those kids, and it would be a hard transferal of trying to say, what, what do I know now, and how do you transfer it back? So let's then look forward. What are you focused on as you continue to grow? What, what are you learning? Who's guiding you now? What kind of classes are you taking? How are you trying to grow over the next few years? We have uh, <clears throat> Ruta here. We do the the Parshat HaShavuah, which isn't you know, a big deal, but it's something that's enough to start the week. And then I have shiors um, with my friends in Israel, and several of them are rabbis, so it's always fun because you, you work with text and something, and you look at a word and you say, well, where did this word come from? And you know, why is it used in such a way? Or talking about contemporary era, uh, you know, stuff that's going on now with, in the political realm, because I'm still very concerned about the nature of the state of Israel and the you know the future of Zionism. So I try to keep myself involved. I do listen to some of the, the Tikva podcast. Uh, Ruth Weiss is one of my favorite uh, persons in the world. And the Library of Israel, for example, has a, a tremendous Zoom program. So there's ways to try to stay engaged. It sounds for sure like you're keeping yourself pretty busy. So let's now close the interview with the lightning round. I'm going to ask you some uh, quick questions. Are you ready? Fire at will. All right, number one, I think you're the best person to ask this question. 
What is your best advice to avoid seasickness while you're out on the ocean? Don't go into the cabin. Stay up where you can see the ocean and the horizon. Really, what is it about going into the cabin that makes the seasickness kick in? You have no visual reference when you're in the cabin about where, where you are, where your body is relative to the surface of the, of the water. When you're above or we can see out, you can see, you know, if you're, if you're rolling or pitching, you can, you can watch it. All right, second question. Did you ever have an experience out at sea where you thought, whoa, this is a storm that's making me a little bit nervous? Yes, I have. Uh, I worked in the Gulf of Alaska. And uh, during the winter there, the winter storms can be terrifying, not only because there's so much wind, but when you're out in the ocean, it is so cold, the water, when it blows over the top of the boat, turns to ice. So pretty soon your boat is covered with ice, and you have to send people out to clear the ice off. Otherwise, you're going to eventually, if you don't do it, you're going to sink. And, and, and it's through your own sort of sort of saying, well, what, what am I going to do? It's sort of like when Nakshon jumped into the Yom Suf to separate the water. You have that existential crisis. You can't have that because if you don't, you're not you're not going to survive. So it's that's that's always that um, element. It can get hair raising, and I've had a few close calls. I look at the weather now when I'm out of the water. I say, oh, it's so much easier being on terra firma. <laughs> <laughs> and yet you chose it all these years to be out on the water. I, I did. It was it was exciting. It was because I was going to different. Pl- I was going to places where nobody goes. Because the only access is by the ocean. You're experiencing things that you don't normally do, even as a tourist. Last question. What is the hardest thing about keeping Shabbos in the middle of an ocean? Uh, I think not having a pseudo-ashly sheet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I always miss the singing after meals. and that, I think that was hard. It's just being by yourself. It's hard to have Shabbat on your own. It really is. It's very difficult. Ed, I'm just reflecting on the interview that we just had together, and I'm realizing this podcast is all about inspiring Jewish journeys, but you, more than anyone else I've ever spoken to, have literally had a journey around the world, but also spiritually had a journey in converting to Orthodox Judaism. So thank you for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. Well, you're very welcome. It's a real kavod. Thank you. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.